Hello and welcome to the Games Industry.biz podcast. I'm Rebecca Valentine and I'm joined today by Matt Hendrahan, Brandon Sinclair, and Hayden Taylor. We're here, as always, to discuss the latest games industry news and headlines, starting with retail, brick-and-mortar game stores. Not a great week for that. Uh, Sports Direct continued its ongoing takeover of game in the UK this week and now owns 84% of it. And GameStop in the US is trying everything it can to cling to life after poor financials earlier this year, um, announcing this week that it would be piloting new store concepts surrounding things like retro gaming and esports. What do we think of this? Well, I think it's, it's somewhat familiar to me, at least. I mean, uh, the, I mean, obviously, we're, we're two in the UK and two in the US, so I think Hayden and I can probably address the game one a bit more expertly than GameStop, and maybe you two can address that side more expertly than we can. But, you know, get, game, game has long been trying to figure out ways of making money that doesn't involve actually selling copies of new games. You know, this is, this is not a new thing. What, what's significant about this is that, uh, it's a sports clothing company that has bought it out, uh, which seems like it's actually quite far away from what Game does. The game itself has been kind of branching out into esports more and more with these in-store sections that are branded as belong. And then, you know, I, I to be honest, I actually haven't got any experience of actually using these places because I'm actually based in in Berlin most of the time, where Game doesn't actually do any business. But uh, but basically, you just pay for time on computers. They they, they host uh, esports tournaments with customers and things like that. And, and that at least seems to be the reason why Sports Direct would be interested in, in buying out this company. I mean, Hayden, you live, in, uh, you live in the UK more often than I do. So uh, what's your relationship with game these days? I mean, game is, I, I haven't tried any of the Belong arenas or anything like that. It's not really my scene. But um, there's a game here in Brighton, which is, uh, it's pretty small, but about a third of it is basically just a sweet shop it's it's like it's it's full of like a lot of weird american sweets i say weird american sweets like you don't just don't, you just don't get them in the uk These things like nerds like snickers yeah oh my god we get snickers over here yeah, okay, just okay. i don't know why anyone would eat them um but yeah it's, it's things like nerds and like uh like cans of fanta that are like the size of a small dog and they're like purple flavor and stuff like that and it's it's really kind of leaning into that whole like gamer fuel sort of vibe uh so yeah it's kind of weird it's and it's, there's a lot of like merchandise and stuff i would say about half of the relatively small shop in total is is games half of which well probably about three quarters of which is used games yeah yeah, I was so, I was sort of wondering when we would get to merchandise because you know Matt was listing all these different things that Game is doing in the UK that are not specifically selling new games, and that's been the thing with GameStop for a while. Like that's been the joke. First, the joke was that they sell used games for like you know five dollars less than a brand new copy, and people get like no money when they trade in used games and then have to pay out the nose for used games. Uh, but then they started moving into merchandise kinds of things, and yeah, GameStop. When I go in now if I go in at all, is I feel like it's almost all merchandise. Like, yeah, there's games, but the merchandise just overwhelmingly takes up the store. Uh, the joke Brennan made on Twitter the other day was something about Funko Land and Funko Pops. Mm -hmm. and it's just gone from one to the other. It, it's it's just wild. Yeah, well, the, uh, an interesting thing about Sports Direct, just before we move on, is that it's actually famous in the UK, which I think is where most of its stores must must be for buying up sort of like exhausted brands, clothing brands. Like in sports directors, it's not just sports clothing. It has all of these other brands as well. But they're brands that 
used to have high street stores like 10 years ago, but have kind of fallen on hard times. Then Sports Direct comes in and buys up loads of stock and just kind of keeps them going almost as like in-house brands. So I think it's kind of appropriate that, that this is what's happened with game, right? This kind of exhausted high street presence is now part of this kind of empire of exhausted high street presence. <laughs> It's a, it's a second-hand shop for, for brands people don't care about anymore. Yeah, exactly <laughs> that. Like thing, things you wore when you were a teenager, and then you're just surprised that that thing still exists. But it does exist at cut, cut down price in sports direct. So I guess something that's interesting to me in all this is, I mean, I, I don't have anything pulled up right here, so I can't like specifically quote somebody, but my general impression of people talking about physical retail games is that they're not they're not like dead. It's not, it's not like people just flat out aren't buying physical games anymore. Are we kind of attributing this general trend of GameStop and game doing poorly to like Amazon? What's, what's killing them? I guess. I think there's a, there's a a few things and just, you know, like being able to download your games directly from the platform holder seems like the biggest one. But like, I also think um, eBay and Craigslist in the States, uh, took a took a pretty big chunk out of out of GameStop as well just because like for the the options facing people instead of you know I'm going to sell this brand new game for $20 and they're going to turn around and sell it for 45 you just go online and it's pretty easy and you can sell it for 35 or whatever uh and there and there is a a large retro scene you know like GameStop isn't going to buy back your Xbox Steel Battalion controller set right now but you can go on to ebay and sell it to some dude for a few hundred dollars who doesn't realize that just like you he is going to wind up shoving it into his closet and never touching it for 10 years <laughs> um and that that's the thing that interested me the most about the, the the gamestop pivot here where they said like oh we might we might do uh retro specific stores and i think they actually literally could bring back the funko land branding uh funko land was one of the the chains that babbages and GameStop and software, et cetera, and electronics boutique, they all kind of merged into this this one massive GameStop thing. But Funko Land specifically was uh, focused on used games, and you could try out any game in the store on an NES or a Super NES or whatever you had right there. And it, it had its own kind of vibe because um, it was a place that, that kids would just kind of go there and spend playing the whole day playing games because they couldn't you know afford to go to the arcade or whatever and like that and that's kind of the like you talk about uh game how they want to sort of change it into a place where you would go to spend time because you enjoy the experience of being there and uh i i think sort of the equivalent in in the u.s with what gamestop's trying to do like a a retro store where people go to talk with you know other old-timer retro-y kind of uh gamers is like i can kind of i see the appeal of that like personally that doesn't mean it's commercially viable because you know the dreamcast and vita were very appealing to me personally Um, yeah but i wonder if there's any is there a a corollary for this idea in in a similar space because i i the the phrase that really throws me in this GameStop story is this whole idea of experience-based retail, which is kind of an odd sort of buzzwordy type phrase, which I never truly understand what they mean by that. But 
are we to, do we imagine things things like the games workshop um, offers to people in the in the kind of the tabletop scene where people go there to play and to meet and to talk it's it's a retailer but it's also a kind of it's also a hang to a degree as well I mean, is this this what we imagine gamestop is looking at it makes sense to me i mean i i used to manage an arcade and we always had people like coming in to play magic the gathering on on the uh, like the main checkout counter thing and um you know how many comic shops do you see with like the uh here are the tables for people to play warhammer bring in their their miniatures there so it's yeah. you, you no, just keep people around similar. There's a there's a really successful place in my former city that is a it, it's a it's a barcade but it's also like a cafe and tabletop shop so like half of it is a bar that serves alcohol and has all these old arcade machines but then it also has like modern you know machines and like it, I, th I think it has switches and Smash Brothers and all like all these modern games and you pay to drink and play modern video games and then the other side is a cafe with a whole bunch of board games and tabletop stuff and you can just cross between the two and do all this stuff and it's crazy popular and I I mean I mean I even think back to I, I never liked going to GameStop or when we had EB Games here still. I never liked going there because it was just it was all just stuff that I could look at and probably couldn't buy on my allowance. But I loved going to the game section in Walmart because I could look at the games and they had all these little kiosks that I could sit there and crane my neck up and, you know, play whatever game was up on the TV. And I could play like I mean they were they were demos, but they were usually like more extended demos. There was actually something for me to do, whereas if GameStop has a kiosk, it's like one kiosk and it has maybe like a trailer. So I, I see what they're going for with the whole experience-based thing. I don't know that it's going to save them. I've got a quick tangent here, and feel free to cut this out from the final <laughs> cut of this, but uh, those Walmart kiosks where they had the screens up like 10 feet tall looking down at the kids, and, and just, I think, looking down the aisle yeah! and seeing so many kids yeah. glazed-eyed, slack-jawed, staring up at those monitors did more to terrify parents than make video <laughs> games into a, an early 90s violent boogeyman than anything else. Oh! I love <laughs> them, though! <laughs> Don't destroy my childhood, Brian. Well, he's destroying, he's destroying the perception of your childhood. <laughs> the, what, what your parents thought when they saw you doing that. I mean, the, the thing that I that makes me wonder about this is that, yes, it's fine. You know, you can come up with these concepts as a way of keeping people in the store. But I don't think there's any way of making up for the lost revenue that all of these new disruptive influences have presented. There's no way of making up for the number of games people now order through Amazon or increasingly do digitally. I mean, the, I, I'm sure all of these retailers are really looking forward to the new consoles arriving because that's always those are always boom years for them. But fundamentally, you can keep... So, you know, the Games Workshop thing being an example, or, you know, you could say like vinyl record stores. They always have lots of turntables for people to try out on and stuff. But, you know, the, the vinyl records, maybe this is a bad example because they have had a resurgence, but vinyl records used to be sold absolutely everywhere. Now they're sold in a small handful of places. Be, in a big city, you'll have, you'll have quite a few, but you won't have them in most towns in the UK anymore because it's not a sustainable business like that. You can't. You can't rent out that much. you can't rent out that kind of retail space and give it over to people just hanging around talking about music anymore because the margins on the vinyl business are just way too small. And I wonder about things like these experience-driven retail and gaming terms because say you have a cafe, but you know the the margins on running a successful cafe are razor razor thin. And I I can just see this re 
experience-driven retail be being like GameStop, give the example we're using here, just entering into four or five different businesses at once from like selling beer and running a cafe and having a tabletop area and doing all of this stuff. But does it actually add up to stability? Because actually that just strikes me as kind of chaotic. And what it really is looking for is dependable revenue. Sure. But if, if you look at like uh, how game are running their belong arenas, those are like competitive spaces and they build competitive teams. Um, and like that's that's premium sort of space for sponsorship. Um, and I think that's I mean, like I, I don't I don't know how successful belong has been in the UK yet. I think something like this has got quite a long lead time, like esports as a industry as a whole, like, you know, Riot Games aren't even making money off League of Legends esports yet. Like there's a lot of money floating around the esports sector, but it's still a hard place to find profit at the moment but i kind of think it's maybe in a bit of a position where it's like you know these things are going to have a long lead time and they're going to have a very long tail so it's going to take a while to ramp up and i feel like you know just selling cans of diet like uh you know monster energy or whatever that's going to help but i feel like a lot of money will be coming in from sort of less obvious uh less visible revenues things like sponsorship and stuff like that yeah and and with GameStop particularly, it's the question is how much longer it can continue with all of this uncertainty. Because certainly, like the story of GameStop over the past year year or two has been one of like kind of near disaster the entire time. That's putting it lightly. <laughs> <laughs> Ubisoft. Uh, Ubisoft had a, had a busy week this week. It had its quarter one financials. It announced over 110 games coming to Uplay Plus. But what we're going to look at is the publisher's partnership with Joseph Gordon-Levitt's platform, Hit Record. Uh, they were criticized for, uh, the criticism was that they were asking for unpaid spec work uh, back at E3 2018 for trying to crowdsource assets for Beyond Good and Evil 2, which is you know, through Hit Record. Um, and then after that wave of criticism, uh, for some reason, they've decided to do this again for Watch Dogs Legion music. I guess they don't care that people are mad. Well, they don't care that a, a small number of people are mad, I suppose. I, I think that could be that. So the, the, thing, the thing is with this uh, that I find quite interesting is that one of the companies in Ubisoft's uh, incubation program is doing what Hit Record does. This, that sort of like crowdsourcing assets. And like the problem that Hit Record has is that, you know, if, if you have, say, one person makes an asset and then somebody else iterates on it, improves it, and then somebody else turns like a bit of concept art into a 3D model and somebody else does like, I don't know, a classical remix of a of uh, someone else's track like you have multiple people contributing to the same asset and so it becomes very difficult to make sure that any of these people are properly compensated and from what i understand that's a lot of the criticism around ubisoft and hit record is like how do you properly compensate people for their time um and their actual effort and so it seems a little bit a little bit kind of weird that Ubisoft are actually incubating a program in their own in in Station F in Paris that does this and is and is designing itself specifically to sort of counteract a lot of the problems with Hit Record and and yet they're still Ubisoft is still just turning to Hit Record so I don't know maybe it's a case of of this this other software or this other platform just is nowhere near ready. To, to be clear, what what 
sorry. T- to be clear, what they're doing is they're, they're asking people to compose songs for Watch Dogs Legion, and they're saying they will pay $2,000 for each song that actually makes it into the game, and they're searching for 10 songs. So 10 people... Oh, and, and sorry, the 2000 is going to be split between everybody who contributed to the song, and that's including, you know, writers, musicians, you know, a- anybody involved. So the the issue is that, you know, people, if, if your song gets in, you'll get $2,000 for it split between everyone involved, which I, you know, I guess depending on how many people are involved is like, I don't know how much songs cost. It's <laughs> uh, <laughs> probably not enough. Um, but that, for, a, for a video game, I don't know. Um, but then the people who, you know, put all the work in to create a song that doesn't make it in get nothing. And that's, that's unpaid spec work. So that's, that's, that's what this, this other company is. Again, the other thing that it's, this other startup, sorry, it's trying to sort of tackle is like, they, they accept the fact that a lot of times people put a lot of work into stuff that doesn't get included in a video game, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it, it doesn't contribute to part of the process or part of the creative process. And so the way that they're looking at it is finding ways of appropriately um, compensating people who maybe did concept art that after 30, 30 iterations was something very very different but still they get paid sort of an accordance like a contracting day rate almost based on their work that sounds like a nightmare yeah i think that this is it's an it's an intriguing thing this one because i i can actually quite believe that this that some of the higher ups of ubisoft are sort of out of touch enough to to kind of feel like this would just be like a cool thing that can happen and no one would really would really mind, but it, it actually just touches on lots of very very um, uh, on trend on trend issues in the industry, which relate to things like undervaluing work, uh, devaluing work, and I think that think that's a big one here. Again, I'm not a composer, but I can only imagine that if, if they hired a professional composer, though the per track rate probably is quite a bit higher than two thousand dollars. And it also it also ties into things like uh, exploitative working practices and this idea that you know that uh, you know we can we can describe the people they want to contribute here as gamers or the passionate community, but the fact of the matter is the people who are going to be contributing songs here are, are going to be skilled enough musicians to make a song, right? So potentially you're going to have quite a lot of people that, that are aspiring in this field uh, doing what could be paid work for free, and it it all seems to be united under this this kind of one what. You know what? It, what is on its face, um, not not exactly uh, wouldn't seem to be that provocative a move for Ubisoft to make, but it got a lot of pushback from fairly prominent voices on social media, including people from uh, from from Yagex, uh, NeoCab team, the Mike Bithel, Mike Bithel came out and, and commented on it as well. All around these ideas that this, you know, it's hard enough at the moment to get paid for work in the video games industry, particularly on this kind of like in the freelance world of the video games industry. So for for a company that can easily afford to pay people to make music like at a proper rate for them to endorse this kind of thing does seem a little bit um, a little bit off and a little bit out of touch. It also seems wildly unnecessary. Like their their response uh, to it was something like they're, they're, the Watch Dogs Legion audio team is already working with professionals on uh, over 140 licensed songs and an original score. So they have, you know, hundreds of songs. 
and they're specifically doing this for 10 songs. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they clearly don't need this. This isn't, like, a, a gap that they desperately need to fill that they can't pay, like you said, that they can't pay someone professional for. I like that that was part of their defense. Yeah, like, it's, it's weird that, like, they don't, they don't seem to need this, but they're doing it, I guess, because they want to inspire the passion of the fans and... You know, they say it's completely voluntary. Well, you don't don't volunteer your labor for like a a triple A publisher. Um, it's it's just it's it's kind of wild. Um, I I think the fact that people pointed out that Joseph Gordon Levitt is a union member is an interesting uh, thing to know. <laughs> yeah, that, that that's not that 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 should definitely not be passed over. The fact that Joseph Gordon Levitt literally cannot take work below a certain rate. And yet is endorsing other people's free labor. But also, you know, Ubisoft, I'm sure the fact that Joseph Gordon-Levitt will be tweeting about Watch Dogs Legion to 4.2 million people on Twitter probably didn't escape their notice for what will end up being $20,000. I don't think you could, per- I, don't, I, I don't know what the going rate for social media campaigns is anymore, but I reckon an account with $4.2 million, m- multiple tweets about Watch Dogs Legion for 20 grand, I think that probably represents quite a good deal. Even. Plus, you know, the the 10 groups or whatever that whose music makes it in will more likely than not probably be, you know, fairly skilled people who already have followings as well. Not as big as Joseph Gordon-Levitt, but that's a little bit extra on top. So do does anyone see an issue here with uh, things like Little Big Planet or Dreams or Super Mario Maker and, and the way that these companies with user-generated content are also essentially having uh, skilled designers pay for the product. And then, you know, that's kind of, that's the appeal of these games in a lot of ways is that you can get that for free. Yeah, uh, there's definitely an issue there. Um, there's, I suppose, a counter that Media Molecule would offer is that people people can and have uh, got got their start in the industry on the basis of uh, little big planet levels and, and and the like. Well, spec work is kind of premised on that, right? Yeah, no, no, yeah. So, so I would say that's a weak defense, right? It's still like a an endorsement of 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 uh, of unpaid labor. But this is, yeah, I mean, it, I, but mentioning those examples just shows that this has been fairly common practice for well over a decade. You know, making making software that effectively has value created by talented people in the community putting in hours for free. Yeah, so this industry basically will take any any avenue of passion that it can find, mm-hmm. and it will turn that into profit and monetize it. It does, though. I mean, like Super Mario Maker feels categorically different, though, doesn't it? Like, it feels less like what Ubisoft is asking for, and more like, say. YouTube existing. I mean, I guess YouTube, you know, you can get paid on YouTube, whatever, but, you know, but maybe before you could, like, you know, it's just a thing that exists and you can put videos on it. Like Mario Maker is a thing with tools that exist and you can put levels on it if you want. It, it, feel, it feels categorically different, like not quite the same. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, not sure the, uh, I'm not sure the comparison really sits because like Super Mario Maker 2, as an example, is that, you know, that comes with a story campaign that is basically designed to teach you how to design your own levels. So I could pick up Super Mario Maker 2, play it through, and get a basic understanding of how to make a level and probably make a reasonably decent level. Whereas, like, 
pitting me like, what ubisoft is asking is for professional musicians to basically enter the thunderdome <laughs> and fight 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 over two grand and the right to appear in watchdogs 2 like i it's kind of, i think it, it's it's kind of to do with like um power dynamics almost right super mario maker 2 is very like part of the game part of the appeal is you can make your own mario levels you know all those times you've played mario and you thought god this would be a great idea for a level well you can do it and you can share it with your friends and you can compete and there's an entire sort of ecosystem and community built around that and nintendo have thought very carefully about how to teach people the fundamentals of level design whereas it, yeah whereas i feel like that the power dynamic that ubisoft has which is they're waving a check above your head as like you you know pour your heart out into some song for ubisoft i i just don't i just don't feel those two things are really comparable yeah now if nintendo comes back around here in a couple months and says hey we're gonna have a content contest where the best 10 mario maker levels will pay you two thousand dollars if you make one of the best 10 ones and then we're gonna put it in a whole other mario game and sell it to people at that point i think yeah. we've hit yeah. we've hit ubisoft well, so interesting. i mean this is i think so uh, uh the developed conference last week, I saw Media Molecule give uh, give a talk. All, all five founders of Media Molecule were there giving a talk. It, that doesn't happen very often. It was, it was really interesting stuff. But there was a very strong suggestion that their long-term goal with Dreams is for people that make content on Dreams to be able to sell that content on platforms like Steam and various other storefronts. So I think Dreams, I mean, if, if that good comes to that. pass... Well, yeah, good luck with that. But if that kind of thing came to pass, that would be like the muddiest of possible waters, right? You know, this this kind of this game, which it, this this game, which is you know, has some qualities of Mario Maker. I, I would argue probably not as focused as Mario Maker. Like I I, I played little I played uh, medium molecule games in the past. And I don't think they're as focused at teaching good level design as a product like Mario Maker is. It's sort of I played an hour of it a few weeks ago. It is under no yeah. circumstances anywhere near as focused yeah. as so Mario. If you make something, <laughs> so if you make something, something good with that tool set, it's probably because you're pretty good at making things with those kinds of tools. If, if, if Dreams was ever turned to, if Dreams was, if the, the product of Dreams was ever turned to commercial purposes, it would definitely blur the lines a little bit between what we're saying. So again, I'm, I'm not so sure because Dreams is very... Yeah, I've I've seen I've seen people from Media Molecule talk talk about what they want to do with Dreams, and like it is a very apparently a very accessible toolkit, um, and you don't need to be a game designer or a game developer or a coder or anything like that, like in order to make something. Doesn't matter what it is, and then you know it, when you start sort of considering like talking about muddying the waters, it's like at what point does it start to differ from like Roblox, where people People make entire livings making games on Roblox, but that doesn't seem to face the same sort of uh, scrutiny that Ubisoft is facing over uh, Hit Record and Watch Dogs Legion. So again, I just don't necessarily feel like they're comparable. And you, it almost becomes, I don't know, at what point does it start becoming like just uh, like a software engine or like, you know, you, uh, Unity or Unreal and your, your entrance fee is you pay to buy the game and then presumably give media molecule a cut of sales like i don't know i yeah I mean, it was very speculative this this whole idea was a bit sort of like hand wavy and speculative on their part but but i can say that it, it comes from a place that this is clearly something they've definitely thought about and that, that, that yeah if, of course. If, if 
if the the community does what it expects the community to do, they feel they've got a powerful enough tool set to be like like as you say to be comparable to a sort of a game maker or something, but for people that don't need to know how to code and so on. It's definitely a sliding scale, right? Like on one end of the scale, you have something like I don't know Animal Crossing, where I have an extremely limited tool set. I can make a town for my own enjoyment, and I can invite invite like three people to come look at it and do things in it. And that's like obviously not problematic. That's just, you know, sort of a content sharing thing that I can do. Um, and then kind of a little further down, you have something like Mario Maker. A little further down, you have Dreams. And then way, way on the other end, you have kind of what Ubisoft is doing. Yeah. I mean, but what Ubisoft is doing, I think Hayden, Hayden is right. It's 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 different in, in the most fundamental way, which is that it, the only people that can realistically stand a chance of getting this two grand are people that know how to compose a song. And so therefore, is it right that any of them are not compensated for their efforts? Because I know a lot of people who work in creative industries, and generally speaking, if you're looking for, you know, if you're looking for a, for a, you know, a screenwriter to to, to, to to write an episode of television for you, you do pay for them to do a two, three page pitch document. You pay for that. They, you don't, they don't do it for free. Hmm. Um, and this is basically that. This is like skilled musicians make music for us only one of you or one combination of you gets gets uh, a cut of what would one would assume is way below the market rate for this kind of work yeah and i think that there's like maybe an argument that oh well we're gonna you know there are gonna be people who are not skilled who are gonna submit things anyway we don't have to pay them for like working for five minutes on something that's not very sure. good and i'm like well then maybe this model just isn't a good one in the first place if you're just opening <laughs> it up to anybody like i mean i could go at, i don't have any I, I have like a clarinet in the uh, closet somewhere I could like record five seconds of me playing the clarinet and submitting submit that to Ubisoft that that's not gonna win <laughs> I don't I don't deserve to be paid for that but the fact that it's open for me to do that maybe means that this is not a fantastic model that would be a good way for everyone to like do mass protest is just submit really <laughs> terrible clarinet yeah. songs really to... oh, yeah, presume, presumably... hey, I didn't say that I was a terrible clarinet player, Brendan. You inferred that. Well, but I think, I think, <laughs> let, let, well, I think you need to record a song and we can air it in the next episode of the podcast. Why not? <laughs> it can be our new theme song. You won't be compensated for it, but it'll be great exposure. <laughs> Well, I guess pit pity the poor person at Ubisoft that actually has to listen to every single submission for this thing. You know, there are there are going to be some amateur clarinet players just tooting into a microphone for two <laughs> minutes and then sending it in. <laughs> well, since we have um, gotten wildly off that topic, um, let's uh, pivot over to something that I think is maybe a little more fun. Uh, Detective Pikachu became the highest grossing video game movie ever this week. It surpassed the Warcraft movie, uh, grossed $436 million worldwide. Uh, I can kind of see why. It's a good movie. It's solid. Um, but I'm also, you know, it's kind of surprising. We all sort of joke about video game movies not being good in general. Um, Detective Pikachu is a good movie. It's very enjoyable. But, like, I would classify it very firmly as, yeah, that was nice. I didn't, it didn't, like, blow my mind. Um, well, it, it did in some ways. Like, all the Pokemon <laughs> everywhere. But, but my point is, like, the fact that we've gotten this far and we haven't, and Detective Pikachu is the absolute best thing that we've ever done in terms of, like, how much movies have, have grossed, like, that's, that's kind of wild to me. I, lo I love the movie, don't get me well, wrong. Well, I've been yeah. watching video game movies pretty much. I, d I don't know what the first video game movie was, but certainly since the, the very, very like, late 80s, early 90s, I can remember video game movies, and none of them have been very good. 
So if De Detective Pikachu is a good movie, then it's already way, way better than what we've had before. And though I don't suppose that really adds up and tells you exactly why it's been so popular. Because a lot, because I would say arguably bigger, bigger IPs than Pokemon have been used for, as the basis for video, for movies and not done nearly this well. So lovers of Pokemon would, could probably tell me a little bit better than that. I do think the IP is part of it. I think, I mean, I haven't seen a whole lot of video game movies, but I think something that it did that uh, I haven't seen a lot of other video game movies do is instead of trying to either recreate the plot of a, of a video game or like recreate a video game in movie form in some way, it really just sort of, it, it did take like the basic plot of the Detective Pikachu game, but it very much, it, the tone of the movie is so vastly different from what I understand the game to be. Um, and it just sort of, like, like, it put Ryan Reynolds in as the star. Like, it just sort of embraced its own tone and its own feeling. And it kind of worked to meld that with, like, nostalgia for the Pokemon series. I mean, I know the, the most, like, amazing thing to me was just seeing all these Pokemon in the city, like, interacting with humans. And it was, like, the vision of what I imagined as a child uh, when I first, you know, picked up a Pokemon game. And it was really beautiful. But it really, it really just embraced doing its own thing and not trying too hard to like cling to the video games. And I, I think that that really helped. It, it understood that it was a movie and not just sort of a movie recreation of a video. Yeah, game. Actually, that, that's very similar to a point that um, our like regular columnist and sort of editor at large, Rob Farhi made uh, just recently one of his articles. And I've got, got it here. It says, by simply assuming from the outset that the audience has familiarity with an enthusiasm for the Pokemon franchise, Detective Pikachu ends up being able to spin together from its head and shoulders above most other game adaptations. I think that, that is quite an interesting thing because I think in the past, Hollywood and, and all film adaptations have, have kind of tried to play to an audience beyond just the audience that played the game because there was just this understanding that maybe you've got a few million people that might turn up to a Street Fighter movie, but you do need to have more than just gamers in there. But maybe, maybe either Pokemon has an IP or we're just at a point now with the gaming audience having expanded the way it did, Pokemon Go obviously being being a boost for the IPs recognition in general. That you don't actually need to do that. Maybe you can make, maybe you can have Ryan Reynolds be the voice and have it be this kind of weird noir thing. And just the very fact that there are Pokemon in it is enough to to fill up the cinema. I I think a lot of it is is just the idea of these um, you know movie production studios like actually taking the source material uh, more seriously now. And not just understanding that, yeah, you can play to that that audience specifically that already knows it, but also thinking like it's it's worth the time and the talents of you know the movie makers to actually care about this. Like if you watch the director's commentary on the Blu-ray of the uh, Jean Claude Van Damme Street Fighter movie, which I highly highly recommend you do, <laughs> um, St Stephen E. D'Souza. The, the director and writer of it talks about how like how the movie came about and it, it was just sort of like this really weird abrupt pitch process to Capcom and then he's like yeah and then me and my 13 year old kid knocked out the the screenplay overnight uh, we pulled an all-nighter and then got that together <laughs> it's, it's it's just full of this like the, the these anecdotes about how no one really cared about it like no one this was not a priority for anyone beyond everyone just thinking okay well we'll we'll here's this thing that dumb kids like so we'll we'll crank out some some piece of trash and that'll be great i mean except raul julia um yeah there's there's certainly 
uh, some deference to, to him and, and his glorious performance as M. Bison. Uh, but it's it's such a, a change in the mindset between, you know, Super Mario Brothers movie and Street Fighter movie of the 90s to to today where I think a lot of game publishers particularly are looking at um, like what happened with the Marvel Cinematic Universe and, and the DC superhero movies and just saying like, you know what, there's there's no reason that video games can't go from the same like cultural sideline that comic books were in to being a you know a, a major blockbuster kind of thing and i i kind of disagree with that i think there are reasons that can't happen but there's no reason that you can't have perfectly credible entertaining movies based on and set in these video game uh brands i was gonna say i, th- I think you're right because like I think a lot of people are looking at the Lego movie and just Lego uh, like in general these days because Lego went from colorful bricks from to uh you know massive like absolute blockbuster hit films I mean they've been making successful Lego games for like 15 years now and that sort of transition has proved that it's like you actually can basically turn anything into a multimedia tra- like franchise as long as you like treat the property with enough sort of deference i suppose and be like what is it about this property that people like rather than just kind of being like this is a like this this property whether it's like you know like if you look at street fighter that that is that film is not about street fighter they have just taken street fighter as like a coat of paint to put on top of a weird action movie like those two things are not interconnected in any way and i think a lot of people will be looking at Lego and being like, they have managed to turn colorful bricks into this massive multimedia franchise. And they've done it by thinking about what works about the brand and kind of respecting that and understanding what people like about it and what people get from it. And then just kind of trying to recreate that in a different medium. Yeah. I do think Pokemon has an inherent advantage though. Right. Um, And this is a conversation I know that we've already had uh, when we were talking about Pokemon go Um, it, you know, it has been popular for a long time, um, so there are a lot of people who grew up with it, and there are a lot of people who stuck with it, and then a lot of people who also fell off, kind of fell off the wagon. But when Pokemon Go happened, it brought a lot of those people who had kind of fallen off back, um, at least in some like small capacity, to play with their kids who are now old enough to pick up the game for the first time. And so it kind of has that like parent-child appeal, and then also the Detective Pikachu as a movie, it didn't have to. It didn't have to explain itself in that regard. Like, yeah, there were new, newer Pokemon from later in the series, but if you've played Pokemon at any point in the last, how, how old is this thing? Twenty years at this point? It's it. It's up there. Um, twenty? No, longer than that. Twenty-five. Anyway, however long, however old it is, if you've played Pokemon at any point, you were able to understand the movie, and it was, I think, a decent comedy movie in its own right, without like trying to be any of, the, of those other things. So I think it kind of has an advantage over other video game franchises in that regard because there is like an easier point of entry for most people. Um, but I, I do agree with Brendan that it, there, there's not really any reason why other franchises shouldn't be able to do that. Well, I, there, the, there aren't, no. But I think the, the, the challenge with converting a game to a film is that a lot of what makes games appealing it cannot be summarized by an art style or by a script or by a character. It's, you know, so you've got The Witches being turned into a TV series over at Netflix now. There's nothing about the kind of the premise of The Witcher, this kind of, you know, this this monster hunting Lothario in medieval-tinged fancy land that couldn't necessarily lead to a good piece of TV entertainment. But, but a great, a, a huge amount of the appeal of The Witcher is is caught up in intangible things like 
freedom of exploration and uh, the the feel of mechanics. And and there are there are certain qualities of video games that that are almost the entire reason why we find them enjoyable that simply do not translate visually. So I think I'm not enough of a Pokemon fan to be able to say that I and I haven't seen Detective Pikachu. But even if I had, I wouldn't necessarily be able to talk about with any authority about why why it worked. But I know that. You know, the, like the Silent Hill movie, which did actually have a decent quality director and did have a good cast. And I would have said Silent Hill would have been one of the, the IPs I thought could translate. But actually, when you translate Silent Hill for the screen, you actually realise, actually, you know what? The story was good for a video game, but a lot of what made Silent Hill great has got absolutely nothing to do with its story at all. Um, and it's to do yeah. with puzzles and things you just can't put on the screen. And I think there are a lot of a lot more video game IP than most people actually realize but maybe would realize if they sat down and thought about it generally aren't aren't necessarily going to make great great uh, movies like uh, there was there was yeah. a bioshock movie that everybody thought was, was going to be great or w- would happen at a certain point and it never made it and i always thought that was a shame but the more i think about bioshock as a game and what, what that might actually look like as a movie the more i'm glad it actually never happened I do think a really good illustration of the point you just made uh, happened earlier this week. Uh, the Witcher, the Witcher folks uh, made a big deal there because you know they're coming out with the TV series, and they were like, "We're going to reveal the horse. Here's Roach, everybody!" And like half of Twitter was making jokes about how it would be really funny if he just sort of randomly floated through the air or appeared in weird places in cutscenes, which of course in a movie or a TV series, he will absolutely under no circumstances do. Um, and then the other half of Twitter was just like, "Yeah, looks like a horse." Yeah, well, like the, the entire appeal <laughs> of Roach, like like any other TV series would not do this big dramatic reveal of Roach. They'd just be like, "Yeah, he's got a horse. Yeah, yeah. We, we got a horse for that." Yeah, job. That, that's a, that's a, it's a, that's a great example. And like if but if you also think about something like God of War, which is obviously a very highly praised game, and it was praised because of the liberties it took with the IP in terms of its story and its characters and so on. But you know, but the, the idea of a father having a pained relationship with his son might be new stuff for video games. But it's not new stuff for <laughs> film and television. Right? That's a fairly ordinary setup. Video games do lag behind on that. So I think the the treatment of Detective Pikachu sounds like quite an innovative and original tone to give a film like that. And maybe that's a big part of what it works. I feel like, and obviously this the PlayStation angle is relevant because PlayStation has PlayStation productions now specifically to find ways to put something like God of War on the screen. But, you know, who would play Kratos? Would it be like Jason Statham or Dave Batista or something like this? Like, would it would it have any of the of what makes God of War actually a great game to play? Which is actually more about the way it feels when you control it as much as anything anything you can point to in the story. You know, I, I think there's, I think it would definitely still be a very much a roll of the dice kind of thing. You know, I, The Witcher Three is an enormously popular game. Is The Witcher going to make a good TV series? I, mean, I, I would bet against it at this point. They're doing Warhammer now. That was the other announcement this week as a TV series. See, I've been wanting a Warhammer TV show for ages, but I don't want a like a dour live action TV show. Like, oh, it's I... absolutely going to be a dour live action TV <laughs> yeah, show. Yeah, like it, it. I know, but like Warhammer, whether it's 40k or, or like uh, traditional Warhammer, should be animated and violent as all hell and pretty <laughs> stupid. Like. Warhammer works with tropes like that's Warhammer is just the tropiest thing you've ever seen but it turns all those tropes up to 11 so it's absolutely fine and just everything is just the biggest most extreme version of things you've seen before 
and so it's just bombastic and ridiculous. So it being like a dour TV show, like a live action TV show. Like, have you seen the armor that they wear in in like in Warhammer? It's like as big as a car. They all look ridiculous. Yeah. Like, it has to be animated, and I'm just. I've, yeah, I'm, I'm going to watch it because I'm a sucker for that stuff, but I'm, I'm going to probably be profoundly disappointed yeah. as, like, Glummy McGower face wanders around the galaxy <laughs> just being just being dour at people. But uh... <laughs> Get ready. Get ready. Oh, Get ready for the dour. Oh, <laughs> but I mean, it's a good point as well because yeah. the, best, the best Spider-Man film I think that's been made is uh, Into the Spider-Verse, the animated one. They were able to do so many interesting things because it's animated and you can sell ideas... It will be so much harder to sell as live action uh, in an animation, and I think that kind of um, that kind of like the art direction of a war of a Warhammer film and TV series could be could could be so much better, be so much more effectively articulated in animation. I think you're absolutely right. Castlevania, the animated series on Netflix, is actually fantastic. Yeah, that's that was exactly the sort of vein I was thinking. Less kind of anime because I think Castlevania, although it's quite good, it's still quite anime. Um, and I would like it to be a bit more, uh, I don't know, just kind of less convoluted, I think. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I kind of, I, I enjoyed the violence in Castlevania, the animated show, like, there's some great hyper-violence. Um, but yeah, as an actual sort of TV show, it kind of lost me. Oh, that one, I think, just hangs on the relationship between the three characters so much, though. The humor, especially in the second season, is really sharp, and I, I, I loved uh, it. I thought it was great. Yeah. I've not seen the second season, so... Oh, the uh... second season's great. Go back to it, seriously. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sold. <laughs> Let's go ahead and end on that. Uh, I think we're running out of time. You can always go back and listen to previous episodes of this podcast on all good podcasting platforms, and you can, and definitely should, get your daily dose of industry news and insight into the world behind games at gamesindustry.biz.